All right, you know how sometimes you have what you think is a great idea, but then you realize it's probably not that great of an idea? Well, this is kind of probably what today is like for me. I, you know, we just finished up preaching through Revelation, and about, about a month into that, I was thinking, what have I done? And I said, I'll never put myself in, a, in a, that tough of a situation. And then, lo and behold, I have a short memory because we ain't too, too many months out, and here I am asking you guys for questions. What I will tell you, this is, I didn't ask you guys for questions because somehow I think I have all the answers. I do not think that. I'm not trying to, 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 to seem like I'm putting that off. And I hope you don't think that I have all the answers. I do not have all the answers. But there are, there are many questions for us as Christians as we read through the Bible, that, that pop into our heads. Let's just be honest. There are some tough questions. There are things that, that maybe we've been taught, and we, we read the text, and we say, well, I've been taught that my whole life, but, but I, don't, I don't really see that. Or maybe there's something we're going through, and we're trying to find an answer. There are lots of questions that we may have. Now, uh, during this, this Sunday school quarter, on Sunday mornings, we have a class called Got Questions, and any of you are welcome to join and ask questions. And we, we don't always find the answers, and I'm going to tell you today, we're not going to find definite answers for all these questions because a lot of the questions that we ask we're not the first one to ask them people have been asking some of these questions for for thousands of years and there is no answer it's just tough the Bible just it doesn't really tell us for sure one way or another on certain things but I think it is healthy for us as Christians to ask questions sometimes when you ask a question it doesn't necessarily mean that you doubt or that you question the Lord or question God's Word I don't question God's Word in the least God's Word is true I may not always understand it but it's just as true and faithful whether I understand it or not I may not always get what God's trying to say but I don't think God's Word's wrong I just don't always get it so it's not that we're we're evil people if we're Christians if we're, that we're doubting God that's not the case at all but it's good for us to question things because one it gets us to dig into the text and we may not find the answer that we're looking for or we might but along the way God may reveal something to us so that's one good reason to look and and, and dig into certain questions that you may find the answer you don't know it, it may it may be that you find that something you've been told your whole life you find that that's not what the Bible says, or even worse, that that's not in the Bible. Now, there was something, this has been a few years ago, and I was looking for a certain verse in the Bible. I'd been told it my whole life by tons of people, and I could not find it. This was like five years ago. And so I was asking around, and I asked Brother Ernie, can you tell me where this verse is? Because I want to quote it when, I, when I'm preaching. And lo and behold, can you believe that nobody could find it? And, I, and this has been five years ago, and occasionally still I'll run into people, and that may come up, and I'll say, hey, you know, I can't find that verse in the Bible. Can you show me where it is? And all of them say, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'll get back to you. And it's been five years, and I can't tell you how many people, and not a single person has got back to me. You know why? Because it's not in there. I've been told my whole life from tons of people, and it ain't in there. I say it ain't. Maybe somebody can point it out to me. If you care to know, you can ask me later. But I can't find it in the Bible. And it's not that anybody that told me that was trying to mislead me, but the problem was this. They had been told it their whole life, and they never questioned it. Because after all, surely my preacher wouldn't tell me something wrong, or my mom, or my dad, or my grandparents wouldn't tell me something wrong. But sometimes we just take things, and we don't ever check it out for ourselves. Always check it out for yourself. You don't ever take my word for anything. You take God's word for everything. Because I mess up. Maybe I'm teaching something that I hadn't studied enough on. I would hope that 
we never run into people that intentionally try to mislead us, but the reality is we do. There are some people who do try to mislead us. So it's okay to ask questions, and sometimes you may find an answer that you don't like, and that's tough too. But anyway, we're going to pray, and we're going to look at a few questions that you uh, guys have asked throughout the week. And when I say guys, I mean boys and girls alike. Uh, Each of you, some of you have put some questions in the box, and we will try to answer them as best as we can based on what the Word of God says. Now, there will be plenty of times, I tell you this all the time on something, if I don't know something, I'm not going to pretend like I know it. There's no, there's no advantage for us as Christians to pretend like we know. It's okay for us to say we don't know. It's okay for us to have theories. Maybe there are some verses and we say, well, it could mean this or it could mean that. And it's okay for you to have theories, but make sure if you're telling somebody on a controversial verse, say, well, the Bible's not clear on this, but here's my opinion. And it's okay to do that. Just make sure you clarify when you have an opinion on something that's not clear in the text. So let's pray and we will jump in. Father God, I pray that you come, uh, come before us this morning. Just come to us. Let your Holy Spirit be with us. And I pray that you would help us to get some good. I know that maybe this may seem silly to some of us. And, and God, it, I know it's not a, a typical normal sermon, but, but we can get some good. We're going to learn, God, we're digging into your word just the same today. And so I pray that you would just bless us. God, I pray that you would calm my nerves, God, because I am nervous as, as can be, dear Lord. Just, this is kind of scary. But God, I pray that you would just comfort, uh, comfort me and just ease my, my worries. Just humble me this morning. Hide me behind the cross so that I would be obedient to speak truth and just speak what you have revealed to me through your word this week. And so I pray, God, that you would do the speaking, that you would just take over this morning. God, I pray that you would open the ears and open the hearts of each one. And these questions that we don't have for sure answers, help us not to get discouraged, but to know that, God, you just it's some things that we're just not going to know. So help us to, to, to learn to be okay with that as we grow in you. And God, maybe we'll hear some answers today that we don't like. But God, help us to look at your word. And whether we like it or not, we have to, we have to believe what your word says. And so I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Help me to answer these questions in a timely manner and not babble on and waste people's time. But help us to leave here drawing closer to you and learning something about you, dear Lord, that maybe we didn't already know. And God, we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll go through a few questions here that we got. The first question is, do animals go to heaven? Let me find it. I already got my questions out of whack. I didn't do too good. All right. Do animals go to heaven? That's a good question for us to answer. And it's one that the Bible doesn't really, doesn't really speak too much on. If, if, if you would have, would have asked me this question about three weeks ago, I probably would have told you, no, animals don't go to heaven. But after reading through the text and reading through God's Word, I don't know that I can say for sure that animals don't go to heaven because one, God's Word doesn't ever say. God's Word doesn't say that animals have a soul or don't have a soul that I know of. It talks about animals having a breath of life, just like it talks about humanity having a breath of life. What we do see in the text is that when God uh, created animals, He said that they were good. So animals in and of themselves aren't bad. 
But the Bible doesn't ever specify whether or not animals go to heaven or don't go to heaven. Now, you may be thinking about, well, we just read through Revelation and we saw that there were horses in heaven. Well, yeah, we did see horses. But again, that was heavily symbolic language. I'm not saying that those aren't literal horses that we read about in Revelation. They could have been or it could have just been symbolic. So I don't know if we can use that as a proof text to say for sure that there are animals in heaven. So do our pets go to heaven? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me a bit if I get to heaven and there are animals running around. Obviously, it doesn't say anything in the Bible about an animal's soul being saved by Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus Christ's blood was shed for you and I so that we can be forgiven, so that we can go for heaven. But maybe God, He made animals good, and maybe they're not affected by the same sinfulness as me. I don't have a clue. So that's, that's a question that the Bible, we can't say, I believe. Now, maybe some of you, and again, you show me some scriptures afterwards. If, if, I, if I quote something or say something, maybe you can shed some light on something and help me to understand it better after service today. But the Bible never clearly says whether or not animals go to heaven or not. So it is possible that when we get to heaven, we will see some animals there. All right, that was our first question. That was a good one to help uh, get our feet wet. The next question. The next question. Are fallen angels real? Are fallen angels real? This is a good question. Now, the Bible never uses the term fallen angels. And that, that was kind of a shock to me in, in reality because I talk about fallen angels. I've heard fallen angels all my life, but I could not find a single reference in all of Scripture that mentioned the words fallen angels. Now again, maybe somebody knows one, you can point it out to me later, but as of right now, I don't know of any scriptures that I can point out to you that say the words fallen angels. But are fallen angels real? I would say the answer to that question is yes, because even though we don't see the term fallen angels, we do see some scriptures that point out some angels who have appeared to have fallen, who have appeared to pull themselves away and decided they were not going to follow the Lord anymore. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says, So the great dragon, and that is the devil, was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. So we clearly see in the text, we see uh, God's angels who are good and still faithful to Him and serving the Lord. We see those good angels in the text, Michael being one of them. There, uh, there, there are several instances we see angels. We may not always get their names, but we know that there are angels who are servants of the Lord. But in this text, it tells us that there are clearly angels who have fallen, angels who have decided to follow Satan for whatever reason. That also should get our mind to thinking to let us know that Satan is pretty slick. He can deceive the angels who, who, who had knowledge of God, who had seen God, who had experienced God, and somehow Satan was able to deceive those angels that they would turn away from the Lord and that they would come with him. Another verse that leads us to know that fallen angels are real is Jude chapter 1 verse 6 and 7. And he has kept with eternal chains in darkness for the judgment of the great day the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. So there you go. It's pretty clear that, that, that there were angels in heaven with the Lord and there were some, for whatever reason, who took the position they had to be there with the Lord night and day to serve Him. And they said, we don't want that. They deserted their positions. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions, 
just as angels did. Now, when it says perversions there, sometimes when we, when we think of the word perversion, especially when it comes after sexual immorality, we just immediately lump perversion as being sexual immorality. But that's not to be the case. You can, uh, you can have a perversion of something and it not be sexual. It just means taking something that's good and, and, and making it evil. And so that's what these angels, I believe, were doing here, just as the angels did. I don't necessarily believe that they committed sexual acts, but they uh, had made a perversion of what uh, God had made a, a wonderful, a perfect angel, and yet they were, they were turning away from him. And serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, you say, why, did, why is seven important? We get what we're known from six. Well, hold on to that verse seven, because we're going to address that some in the next question. Second Peter chapter two, verse four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. All right, so there we see just three examples. There may be a couple more that we see in the text, but those are pretty clear to say that there were angels who said, look, we're not going to serve you anymore, Lord. And when that happened, it said that they were sent to hell, that they were sent to earth in one of those verses, and that they were set aside for a day of judgment that is going to come. So while the Bible doesn't use the term fallen angels, the Bible clearly talks about the fact that there are angels who have fallen. All right, next question. Next question. Now this one right here, thanks to the person who put this in, because this consumed most of my week, I'm going to be honest with you. This is a tough, tough question. Now, some of you may be familiar with this question, and some of you may not be familiar with this question. Some of you may have read Genesis chapter 6 a, 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 a millions of times in your life, and you've never really noticed it or you've never questioned it. But this is a tough question. And the question is, Genesis 6.15, who were the Nephilim and who were the sons of of God. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 6, we'll read the verse in question, or a couple of verses there, and then we will try our best. Now again, this is one of those questions that has been asked, and there are, there are really two main uh, uh, views and opinions as to what this verse could mean. I'm going to tell you both of them, and then I'm going to tell you which one I think is correct and why I think it is correct based on the text. And again, you may disagree, and that's okay. That's okay if you, if you hold a different view. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 9. Oh, wait, it says 15. That's not 15. I was thinking, wait a minute, something's going on here. All right, we're going to start in verse 1. I, had, I must have hit the 5 on accident there. My bad, y'all. See, I don't, I tell you I don't know the answers. I don't even know how to type on a keyboard, much less know the answers. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. I was freaking out. I was reading 15. I was like, oh, I didn't study this. I don't know what's going on. All right, here we go. Uh, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind. 
who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the uh, famous men. All right, now, the question is, who are the Nephilim and who are the sons of God? We see in this text that the sons of God uh, got together with the, with the uh, um, um, women of mankind, with the daughters of mankind. They saw they were beautiful, and they took them as their wife. And we see in the, verses, uh, the subsequent verses there that they uh, had children together, that they bore children. Now, here is the most common thought in these verses. The most common thought is this, is that the sons of God are fallen angels. Now, some people would argue that, that, first, uh, that verse we looked at in, in Jude, chapter 1, verse 7, where it's talking about the angels, and it's also talking about uh, Noah's time, and it's talking about all the sexual immorality and, go, and things going on, that that is a reference to that those angels who had fallen during that time were indeed the sons of God that are mentioned in this verse. As part of that view and part of that opinion, it is also said that the Nephilim are, are this, 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 this kind of giant race of, of super strong people that were born. A big giant race of super strong people and that these angels saw that, that, that mankind, that women, the daughters of men were beautiful. They gave up their positions in heaven. They came they were with the women, they had children together, and that these children were the Nephilim, and that they were men of renown, men of old. Now that is one, that is one common and probably the most popular view about those verses. And now that's kind of intense stuff, right? That's kind of intense stuff to think about. Now we have to look, I say this all the time, we can't just look at the text, we have to look at the context, and we have to look at the whole text. So for this, we, we, the context is that God is about to destroy the earth because there is a lot of evil. Now, you could, you could say, well, sure there's a lot of evil. If angels had, had come from heaven and were mating with women and making this kind of unique race of, of giant, super strong human beings, obviously that is pretty evil stuff. So the context is that God sees that there is great evil that is going on, and so he decides he is going to flood the earth. Now, he says in the text, it doesn't say anything about angels in this text, but it clearly says that God is destroying the earth because of the sinfulness of human beings, of, of mankind. It doesn't specify the angels, but there, there is a chance that that could be, that could be true. The word Nephilim in the text that we see here, it has multiple meanings in the Hebrew. It can mean to fall and it can mean giant. Now we only see the word Nephilim in a couple of spots in our Bible. The other spot we see it is in Numbers <coughs> chapter 13. Now we're, we've been going through the book of Joshua. We do that on Sunday nights if anybody cares to come go through the book of Joshua. And before they went into the promised land, there were some spies that went in to see what it was going to be like over there. And when they came back, they reported that they saw the Nephilim. Now the Bible says in these verses we just read that the Nephilim were both alive in those days and in the days after. So if, if indeed these are fallen angels who have come, then there would have had to have been fallen angels who would have come, who would have mated with women and bore children that would have been giants, both in the flood. All of those would have been destroyed in the flood. But if there are Nephilim that are listed by Moses here that are afterwards, and we see again in Numbers that that is definitely the case, if that is true, then this event would have had to have happened once again. But I don't think that 
that the Nephilim are necessarily the children of, of the sons of God and the daughters of men. I think the text clearly only says here that they were together on the earth at the same time. It never says that the Nephilim were the ones who were born of the men and the women. It says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as their wives for themselves. Okay? So that's what we see. We see sons of God and daughters of men getting together there. And then it goes on to say, The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards, when the sons of God and the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. Now, they were both on the earth at the same time, but it never once says that the Nephilim were the ones who were born to them. Now, it gets difficult. Boy, it gets a lot of questions in y'all's mind right now, I know. It gets difficult because after that, it says, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Who were? Is it saying that the Nephilim were, or is it saying that the, that the children who were born to the sons of God and the daughters of men were? I don't know which one were. It would seem to me, based on the text and based on the meaning of the word uh, Nephilim being giant, and based on the fact that we see these who are referred to as giants, the Nephilim, that same word is used again in Numbers, it would appear to me that these were, these were big people. I, I believe that the, that the Nephilim were the men of old and the ones who were renowned, although it could have been the, the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So that's one view, is that, is that the fallen angels came, mated with human women, uh, formed this group of, of, of giants, and that's what was taking place here, and that's the evil that God saw. Now that's a lot for us to take in. That's a lot for us to comprehend. Now looking at the verse in the context, if we look at the context of the rest of the Bible, the problem that really is difficult for us there is sons of God. Okay, it is sons of God. Who are the sons of God? And do we see that term used at any other point in the Bible to, to back up either of these two main views? I know I hadn't given you one of the views yet. I'm going to. I hadn't, I hadn't forgot. It's okay. Uh, but there are, there are verses uh, in the Bible, and we have to say, well, which one of these would support which view? Well, there are two verses that, and I believe only, or let me rephrase that, two, two uh, different times in the Bible, uh, one time being in Job on multiple occasions, and the other being in Luke, that would even give any hint of the possibility that the sons of God are angels. One of the references that we see, or several of the references that we see, are in Job. Now, we see that the sons of God uh, come before God in the book of Job. We see that early on. We see another reference to the sons of God later on in the book of Job. And it is pretty clear in that context of the book of Job that the sons of God are angels. It's really not questionable to me. I don't have any question there. Some of you may, and it may not be angels. But I believe in, in the book of Job, that when it talks about the sons of God, that it is referring to angels. We don't see any other instance in the Bible where anybody can just come and go before God. We don't definitely don't ever see that of human beings. Those who are in Christ, there will come a day that when we leave this earth, that we will be with our Lord and Savior forever. But we don't ever see that, that human beings just have the ability to come and go before God in the text. So I don't think that the sons of God are human in those verses. It seems to be clear that they are angels. A New Testament reference uh, comes in Luke chapter 20 verse 36 where it's talking about like angels and our Son of God. Now that's talking about human beings and it's making a reference saying like angels uh, are sons of God. And that verse, that's kind of on the fence. 
you could you could stretch that and say that 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 the angels are son of God and that we like them are sons of God. That's a bit of a stretch, but I wanted to be true and give give any any instance where that may be the case that would say that fallen angels are the sons of God. So those are the only two verses that I can find that would support that theory. I don't believe that theory to be true. And I'll tell you why I don't believe that theory to be true. I believe that the sons of God are godly human beings. We see that, that Cain killed Abel early on and that Cain was, was set apart and that nobody was supposed to mess around with him or anything, that Cain had committed this evil. But God uh, gave Adam and Eve another son. His name was Seth. And it's very clear as you look through the bloodline of Seth that God had blessed them. And it says that that, that, that bloodline, that those people, they were godly people, that they followed the Lord. And I believe that when it says sons of God, I believe that it is talking about those who were faithful to God and they were considered as sons of God. And when it says daughters of men, that is signifying those who were not faithful to God, those who had rejected the Lord in some way, shape, or form. They were not living faithfully to what God had put into place. I believe that the reason why that Genesis says that this sinfulness was brought on mankind is because it was mankind who had sinned and not some fallen angels who had sinned. And I believe that for this reason and this reason alone. It's because when we look at the whole context of the Bible, we only see those two possible instances where sons of God could mean fallen angels, but we see tons of instances in the Bible where those who are God's people are referred to as sons of daughters, uh, sons and daughters of the Lord. They were, they're referred to as sons of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. That's talking about humans. That's not talking about angels. Romans 8, 14, Because those who are led by the Spirit are of God are sons of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now those are some New Testament examples that clearly say that those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who put our faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior, we are the Lord's children. We are the sons of God. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear who the sons of God's are, uh, God are in those verses. Those, we never see that term pointed out clearly that it refers to any kind of angel or lead us to suspect that it does apart from the verses in Job. But we see tons of scripture that point out that those who are in Christ and those who are faithful to the Lord are called sons of God. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for for the sake of the dead. And again there, God is pointing out to His people that they are different from the rest of the people. There is something different about those who are His, in our case Christians, in that case the Israelites, and that they are not to be like other people because they are sons of God. They are His children. Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here we have the Lord talking to David here. Now that's pointing us to Jesus coming in the future, but when this verse was spoken in the context, it was spoken to David, and God is saying, today you are my son. Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the, in the place 
where it is said to them, You are not my people. It will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. So God is, is we see this a lot with Israel. They, they do bad things, and, and they got to go through hard times. But God said, look, you, you go through hard times, you stepped away. But ultimately, in this verse, he says, look, you are going to come back to me, and what are they going to be called? Sons of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children. Uh, some translations would say uh, um, sons of God. Uh, or excuse me, sons. Uh, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children, our sons of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as light in the world. So there's another good example. That's just scratching the surface. We see time and time again throughout God's Word that those who are in Him are referred to as His sons and daughters. And so based on the whole context of the Scripture, based on the fact that earlier on in Genesis, it clearly points out that the line of Seth were people who followed the Lord and were faithful to Him, even righteous Noah and his family. Those are referred to as the sons of God. So I believe that the sons of God, to answer the question in this verse, are those who are of the Lord. I believe that the Nephilim were, were a big, giant people, I believe that they were the same Nephilim uh, that, that perhaps through the genes and the bloodline they got carried over by some who were on the ark, that there were some giants that formed afterward. It was clear that that had to be the case because we see them again in Numbers chapter 13. So nowhere in the Bible uh, do I see, other than Job, sons of God being anything but actual human beings. Now, we can debate that later if you want to because it's a deep topic and it's very difficult. And if you hold the view that it could be fallen angels, then I will say you have an argument there. There are some scriptures that would point to that. But based on my study, and that is, that is my answer to that question. Thank you, Lord. That was tough. All right, moving on, moving on. We're going to the next one, maybe. Going to the next one. Where is heaven located? Now, this is a good question. This is a good question for us to think about. And again, it's hard to say because the Bible never really tells us exactly where heaven is located. Now, we know for sure that heaven is a real place. If you question that, then go read your Bible some more because it mentions heaven a ton in the Bible. In my particular uh, translation of the Bible, it mentions heaven 599 times, and that's just in the New Testament. So heaven is mentioned a ton of times in the, or excuse me, that's in the whole Bible, 599 times. And 73 times it's mentioned just in the book of Matthew. It's mentioned more in Matthew than in any other book of the Bible. Heaven is mentioned. Heaven is for real. And we don't need a book about a kid who went there to tell us that. We know that heaven is for real. But the question that we really want to answer now is, where is heaven located? And there, there, there could be two possibilities, really, I guess. And that is, heaven is a spiritual place. And it's not really a place that you could just, a physical place that you're going to be able to go to, but it's just going to be a, 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 a spiritual place. And all of this symbolic language, if it is that, that we see in Revelation, is just symbolic of a place and it's a spiritual place. That's one view. The other view is that it is a physical place. It's a place that's located somewhere. But how do we get there is the question. How do we get there? Well, I'll read you some verses about heaven just to kind of give us an idea of what heaven is like. 
Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. So we know that as Christians, our reward is great in heaven. So it's obviously a place that we as Christians are going to go to at some point in time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we know that heaven is a place that the Lord resides. So that's pretty easy to see in the text. Matthew chapter 5 verse 18, for I assure you until heaven and earth pass away. All right, so we know from this text that there's going to come a time where the heaven that is right now and the earth that is right now is going to pass away. We know in Revelation when we study through there, guess what? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I have a theory as to why I think uh, think that it's important for us to have a, 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 new or a new heaven. And you say, well, why should we have a new heaven if heaven's there and God's there? I think the reason why we need a new heaven is because obviously there were those angels who rebelled that, 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 that were once in heaven. And so while the old heaven was made to be a perfect place, there seems to be some, some evil, so to speak, if you could call it that, that has taken place because angels have, have, have fallen from there and you got the devil that still we see in Job able to go and have some communication at least between the Lord. And so I think the reason why we see a new heaven is because God wants a new place that's not tainted by any of that evil that has gone on before. And so we see that God resides in heaven now, but we know that there's coming a day based on the text that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But our citizenship is in heaven. So where is our citizenship, Christians, going to be? It's going to be in heaven. It's going to be somewhere that we can actually go, from which, for which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So where is heaven at? I do not know the answer to that question. I do not know because the Bible doesn't tell us. I be, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe, based on the text, that heaven is a real physical place that is somewhere out there. I believe that the description of heaven, the new heaven that's going to take place that we see in, in Revelation, I believe that that is a real physical place. Now, some of you may say it's symbolic, and you may have some scriptures to back that up, and that's okay. We can, we can differ on that view. I personally believe that heaven is a real physical place. So the question is, where is it? I don't know. How do you get there? If somebody asks you how to get to heaven, you can give them directions. You know sometimes people come to you and they say, how do you get there? And you say, well, you get on this road and you take a left and you go here and you turn right at this place and this place. If somebody says, how do I get to heaven? Then here's the directions you can give them. Say, go to Jesus and keep going straight. That's how you get to heaven. I don't know where heaven is at, but that's how you get there. You go to Jesus and just keep going straight, and He will get you there. And when you get there, you won't care where it's at because He is there. And that really is what heaven is. It's not so much about where heaven is located, but it's that when we get there, we will see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So wherever it is, I don't know about you guys, but I want to be there. And, God, and Jesus Christ will get us there because He knows the way because only He is the way. Alright, we got one more question and it is a doozy. It is a doozy. Now this is a tough question right here. This is the last one. I uh, will be a little late, but it'll be okay. If you need to go, feel free to go right ahead. We won't think anything of it. Alright, what the, the, the actual question I got for the person that wrote it 
uh, was what about homosexuals and lesbians? Homosexuality, that, that, that includes men and women, that includes both. And homosexuality uh, is that a man loves a man, has feelings for a man, and does things that are, that are unpure, and same for a woman. Uh, the question is, what about homosexuality? The real question, if I can rephrase that, I think what was being asked is, as Christians, how do we deal with that? What should be our response in this world where we see homosexuality running rampant? Is that something that we should single out a sin, that we should treat differently? Should we speak out more about it? Should we speak less about it? What should we do about homosexuality? What should be the response of the Christian? This is a tough question, but it is important for us. Now, there are many different sins that affect different cultures and have throughout the history of the world. In this particular day and age, this is the sin that, that is most prominent, that is going to get on the news, that's going to get all, you know, all the publicity, and this is the one that is, that is current. So it is important for us to discuss this as a church. I don't preach on this a lot. It's not that I'm trying to avoid the topic at all. It's important for us to talk about this, and so we are going to discuss this for a little bit uh, this morning. Now, there are some who would say that homosexuality is a worse sin than any other sin. And to that I would say yes and no. To that I would say yes and no. Here's the problem when we begin to label sins of which ones are bigger and which ones are small and which ones are better and which ones are worse. All sins are evil to the Lord. God does not want any sin. It's a worse sin in the, in the, in the sense that the consequences of our sins are different based on the sin. It's not that, that, that one sin necessarily is worse than the other. In, in God's eyes, all sins are bad. But different sins have different consequences. I will also say this, that I believe when you see a society and a culture, when you get to a point in that society and culture where homosexuality is running rampant, it is a, it is a sign of how bad that culture has gotten. Because people have just thrown everything out the window. By the time you get to that point, a culture gets to that point, it's generally because they have been so far apart from God and so consumed with their own desires that they don't care about the Lord. And so I do believe that homosexuality uh, lets us know how bad of a shape a nation or a place or a country is in. The consequences are worse, but the sin in of itself, I would say, is not any worse because sin is equal in God's sight. Now, some of you would disagree. Here's one of the arguments. Some would say, I'm presented with this argument sometime, that the Bible says that homosexuality is mentioned as an abomination, so therefore it must be worse than any other sin. Here's where it says that, Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. But I don't believe that that argument, I don't believe that that argument can stand. And here's why I don't believe that that argument can stand. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable, or in some translations, detestable and abomination are interchanged throughout the Bible, depending on your translations. Uh, seven are an abomination to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, 
a feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Well, if we're going to go with abomination, homosexuality is not listed there, but there are seven other things that are. So we can't single out and say, it must be worse because it's mentioned as an abomination. Well, so is a bunch of other things. And guess what? We are guilty of those things. Some of us may be guilty of homosexuality. I don't know what anybody's struggling with, what sin they're struggling with. But we're also struggling with some sin. And so I can't let that one verse in Leviticus single out and say, homosexuality must be worse than any other sin. Here's another verse, another argument from Leviticus uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 13. Here's what you say, the, the one who's a homosexual is, homosexual is evil, because look at what the Bible says to do to him. If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable, or an abomination, a, a, a detestable thing that must be put to death, their blood is on their hands. Well, there you have it. Homosexuality must be a worse sin because look at what the punishment for homosexuality was in those days. They were to be put to death. That should say it pretty clearly, shouldn't it? I can't go with that because of this. Exodus chapter 31 verse 15. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day there must be a Sabbath of complete rest dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath must be put to death. Well, dang. The people who worked on the Sabbath day had to be put to death. Guess what? That's the same punishment for the homosexual. So I can't just say from that verse that homosexuality was dealt with differently. I mean, if, 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 if working on a day that was supposed to be set aside was holy, was a sin, then there would have been lots of people that were killed. Now, we talked in great detail about this. I won't go into detail. We are freed from the law, but we still come and worship the law. That, that punishment is not there for us. So if you, don't, if you miss church, don't be sitting there freaking out right now saying, I'm gonna, I didn't come to church last week. The punishment for that is death. That was, for the, that, was, that was for the Israelites. We can talk about that if you want to know about that. Talk to me about it later. We are freed from that law, but the point is the same. The punishment in the Old Testament law was the same for homosexuals, and it was the same for missing the Sabbath, and there are some other instances where death is, uh, is commanded too. So we can't just take that, those few verses and say there's something different about homosexuality. I've already mentioned there is something different about it, because the consequences are different. I also think that there is something different about it because when we look at the Bible, we see marriage is the illustration that God uses between Christians and Jesus. Jesus is our groom. We as the church are His bride. I think marriage is a very important thing in the Lord's eyes. God said it is not good for man to be alone. He provided a wife for him. We see it clear in the text. It is not a question, by the way, of whether or not homosexuality is a sin. It is definitely a sin, but the Bible is full of sins. So the question is not, is it a sin? We know that that's the case, but we know that, that, that marriage has... has has been something special in the Lord's eyes, and that's what we as Christians look forward to in Revelation, the marriage feast where we will come together with our groom, with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when you take that and you break away from what God intended, you see massive consequences for the worse. We see it in our culture today. We see kids who will be raised in that atmosphere. We see that it is accepted. It is celebrated. And that's what makes it scary when you see a sin that is celebrated. And it, I'm not just talking, I'm talking about any sin. When we as Christians begin to celebrate any sin, we need to look out. 
Sin should not be celebrated. God never celebrates sin. God never turns a blind eye to sin. God never sweeps sin under the rug. Here's what God does with sin. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on a cross. That's what God did for sin. That's a serious deal. So we don't ever want to celebrate any sin, but we see that happening with, some, with, with more than sins and homosexuality, but we see that at the forefront in our culture today. Again, that's a sign of just how bad of a shape that we are in as a culture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, in those verses, we talk about homosexuality. But guess what? It's a comma in there, and there's lots of other sins, both before and after it. The Bible doesn't single this out here as being worse. It's just listed in the list of sins. But we are quick too many times to see people who are struggling with that sin of homosexuality, and we are quick many times to jump right in there and to point that out and say, well, look, it says right there in the Bible, and right next to it, it talks about being greedy. It talks about all these other sins that we do. It talks about being drunkards. It talks about all these sins that we commit and we may be guilty of, but we want to pick and choose which one because in our mind, we have labeled which sins are the worst. We are labeled that some sins are worse than others and that some people deserve God's grace and that some people deserve a little time to seek the Lord's mercy and to seek the Lord's forgiveness, but that others, we're not going to give them any grace, we're not going to give them any mercy, it's either turn right now or burn. I would say that, that, that probably in this church, we're more susceptible to gossip causing problems than homosexuality. You see, there are plenty of, of, of sins that we like to skim over. You see, we'll point out these certain things, and sometimes people ask me this question. This is a tough question right here. It's not, not terribly tough for me, but it may be for some of you. What are we going to do if a homosexual comes and wants to come to church here? That's a, that's a good question. I'm going to tell them to come worship the Lord. I'm going to tell them to come in here and worship the Lord. And you say, how can you do that? Some of y'all are judging me right now. But look, when we get to the point where we're deciding and judging who's going to come into church and we stop turning sinners away from coming into the church, then we're going to lock the door and we're going to go home. Because some of you will say, some of you may not come to church because of what I just said anymore, but, but we'll let gospers come in. We'll let somebody who's been out drunk, and we know they're drunk. We know they go out and drink two or three times a week, and we'll come sit by them, and we won't judge them. We'll get on the phone, and we'll gossip, and we'll gossip, and we'll gossip. We'll be greedy. We'll be backbiters. We will devour one another. But lo and behold, if we find a sinner that doesn't do the sins that we do, we're not letting them come into our church. We have to be careful. Now, don't go out of here saying that Shan said homosexuality is okay and there's nothing wrong with it and we're going to celebrate. Don't go out of here saying that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying that I celebrate it. I'm not saying that I go along with it. What I'm saying is I'm not going to be the one that tells sinners that they can't come before the Lord. I'm not going to be that one. If you want that job, then you can have it. But you should not do that. 
There may be some who are struggling with sin. You think about the drunkard. I'm just picking a random. You think about somebody who struggles with drinking and they know it's wrong and they don't want to and they're driving home from work and they just had a rough day and they give in and they go get drunk and they just feel so bad and they ask God to forgive them and then they come to church on Sunday and we don't say anything to them. What about the homosexual who is struggling, who knows that that's wrong, who knows they shouldn't have those feelings, who knows they shouldn't have those thoughts and they continually go before the Lord and they come before the Lord not I'm not talking about a homosexual that comes in, I'm gay and I'm proud and I don't care and I believe God said it's okay. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sinner who comes to church saying, look, I come before you, Lord, because I know this is wrong. I'm a homosexual. I'm struggling with it. I don't want to be. Then we need to be there to help that sinner, just like we need to be there to help every other sinner that walks in the door of this church. Like it or not, God's Word doesn't single out homosexuality as being a worse sin. There are worse consequences to that sin we should not accept it, but we should not accept any sin. Some would say homosexuality has to be a worse sin. Look at what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroyed a whole city. You're telling me it's not a worse sin? My response to that is Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. That verse don't say nothing about homosexuality. It uses the word abomination, but you know what it's talking about? It says that the people of Sodom had the ability to help people who were poor and needy, and they were too greedy and too proud, and they were only worrying about themselves, and they let those poor and needy people go hungry and without aid. And God said that was an abomination, and that's why I destroyed them. So you see, homosexuality wasn't the only reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I will say that I do believe that that is a much grosser sin and that that was probably the main reason why. But God's Word doesn't separate it as being the main reason why. God says that there are other reasons why. We need to look at ourselves. Are we ever guilty of doing what them verses say? Whoo! Praise the Lord, I don't think we are in this church. Praise the Lord, we're not sitting on money and not helping people. Praise the Lord, and we see need that we are helping people. I'm not patting us on the back saying we're holier than thou, but I'm saying that we want to make sure that we don't ever get to this point. We don't ever want to get to the point where we make sure we got pretty screens and we got plenty of food to eat and everything's good and our church and the air is going, but we got people we can help that we're not helping. We don't ever want to get to that point. It's okay for us to, to do things and, and keep the church up and have this be a good place and eat. It's okay. But we don't want to do that at the expense of helping the poor and needy. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, He was always with, guess who? The poor and needy. You know who else He was always with? The sinners. That's right. He was with them people that did bad. The ones that everybody would say they can't come to church here because they're a sinner. And you know what Jesus did? He sat down and he ate dinner with them. Of all the rotten things for somebody to do, here was Jesus Christ eating with the sinners. And that's what we want to make sure that we do. We want to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of judging and pointing out a finger. We are not saying that homosexuality is not a sin. It is a sin, and they are sinners in need of a Savior, just like the rest of us. Just like the rest of us who are in here that suffer with drunkenness, that suffer with gossip, that suffer with pride, that suffer with being judgmental. All these sins that you may do, 
and I may do, guess what? The same Jesus can wash those sins away, can wash away homosexuality. Too often times of the church, what we want to do is we want to stand out and we want to protest and we want to hold up signs and tell them they're going to hell and we want to quote Leviticus 18.22 and we want to point out all these verses about homosexuality and not one single time when we as Christians do that do people who are struggling with that sin experience the love of Jesus Christ. Not one single time. I'm not saying that we accept or celebrate the sinfulness of homosexuality. I'm saying that we pray to God to help us to love them and let them know that this is not what God desires. The same as you would do if you saw your brother and sister in Christ who was drinking their self to death. You wouldn't just turn a blind eye to it, I hope. You wouldn't go and you wouldn't quote scriptures to them about being drunk, I hope. What I hope you would do is come to them and say, this is not right. God loves you. God cares about you. God can free you from this. I want to tell you God loves you and I want to pray for you. And if we would do that for our drunk neighbor, then we should do that for our homosexual neighbor. We should not make a distinction between the two because I do not believe based on all the texts that we have looked at today that God does. Now, you may not agree with that answer or you may not like that answer and we can discuss that later if you don't. But I'm just reading the Bible to you. I'm just reading you what the text says. I can only go by what God's Word says. I don't always like it. I'll be honest with you. I don't always like what God's Word says. But God doesn't tell us that we have to like what He says. He tells us we have to do what He says. And that's what we need to do. Now, I don't know if these questions that we answered today were beneficial. I hope those of you who answered the question at least got some maybe something out of it, even if it didn't get answered in the way you want. I know that some of them, the answer is, I don't know. But hopefully by being here today and digging through God's Word, maybe it shed some light on some question you got that's difficult. We do this every Sunday morning right through these rooms. You come see us. We start at about 10 o'clock. You can come, ask one of those questions, and we just dig into a different question each week. Some of you may have more questions leaving than you did had coming in after some of the stuff we talked about. But we're going to give God the glory. We thank Him that we can come today. I know it's a little late. I thank you guys for hanging in there. I'm going to say a closing prayer and then we will be dismissed. Father God, I come to you this morning and I thank you for letting us come and just and just freely be able to discuss and look at your word and help us to try to get some understanding based on your word about how to handle these tough situations and tough things that we want to know. God, I pray that you just give us the, the peace to, to be okay with not knowing every answer. God, help us to be able to, to take it when we hear an answer that we don't like. God, I pray that you'd be with each one in this room. God, we struggle with sinfulness. That is clear. God, maybe there are some in this room that are struggling with some of the sins we talked about today. Maybe there are some in here that are struggling with homosexuality. Some that are struggling with gossip. Some that are struggling with greed. Some that are struggling with pride. God, whatever the sin may be, you know it. And dear Lord Jesus, your blood can wash away any sin. God, you don't want us to keep on living in sin no matter what sin it is. So God, help us if there's one in this room today that they would come to you, Lord Jesus, that they would acknowledge that you are the Son of God, that you died on a cross for them, that your blood was shed so that they can be forgiven and that they can know that they need to repent, God, that they need to return of the sin that they're in. 
God, help us to examine our lives and see that. God, I pray that you would just bless each one as they leave. I pray that you bring us back tonight, that we just rock out to you and just worship you and sing praises. Get our hearts in the right place, our minds in the right place, and just bless us as we go this afternoon. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen.